WBZ original. Man, were you a nerd. Yeah. Oh, gosh. <laughs> frizzy hair glasses and braces all at once. <laughs> Bring it in. You didn't have frizzy hair. I had a Dorothy Hamble haircut. Glasses. Oh, we got a Dorothy Hamble haircut. Glasses and braces yeah. with elastic bands. Yeah. Well, it you was were. so pretty. Actually, no. I, I it take was... it back. You were a dork. Welcome, everybody, to Alston's number one podcast, Studio BZ. We're coming at you live from the uh, the new studio, which, well, we can't keep calling it the new studio anymore, but it's oh. still beautiful. Season three, episode 10, and I'm Paula Evans. It's new to us. New to us. And we should say we're recording on National Pancake Day, which I feel is okay. culturally this is crucial significant. Uh, to a we, conversation we are, later. We are observing. We are. Uh, National Pancake Day, we though, are. of course, French toast is better. Uh, Liam. Shout out French toast. But so anyway, moving okay. on. So we I'm Paula so Evan, and you are. You have <laughs> not named Martin your name. And Liam Martin. You're Liam Martin. Yes. Our beloved John Keller is enjoying some vacation time. So he's not with us today. But before he went on said vacation, he did a really interesting interview. He talked with Somerville's poet laureate, just named Pulitzer Prize winner Lloyd Schwartz. Very interesting guy. He's going to talk with us about uh, some of his poems and... Uh, being named Somerville's mm. Poet Laureate. Mm-hmm. He was the music critic at the dear departed Boston Phoenix. So many people remember that. That's so how well. John knows him, of course. And they worked there together. Um, I also did a really fascinating interview that I think represents a lot of hope for parents whose child has just been diagnosed with autism. Keith and Carol Noe of Brockton did an interview with me because they had recommended a woman who really helped their son through severe symptoms of autism from the time he was a toddler. And now that little boy, while he will always need some help, is in a typical public school kindergarten and doing very well. So you'll hear from them. That story is just miraculous. And we're also talking with uh, Carol Fulp. She's a longtime Boston businesswoman and now an author talking about a lack of diversity and how it could drive you out of business. She makes the argument that diversity isn't just a moral issue. It is a bottom line issue. It is better it's for your business, business to add diversity. We're going to be talking with Carol Fulp about that. And, and we you should know, say. I, how, how can I say Liam has very strong opinions and feelings about certain matters. In general. In general. <laughs> the latest. Um, well. Uh, we talked about movies last week. Yes. Um, on, a, on a future podcast, we'll be talking about his strong stance on pajama pants. Don't but that's for another started. day. Don't get me uh, started. But this week, Liam, what are your feelings about our seasons here in New England? Well, I just think the seasons have changed and we have a new seasonal calendar mm-hmm. here in New England. I... Pitched this uh, on Twitter yesterday. Let people know my feelings. Eric Fisher quickly stomped out my hopes and dreams of a new seasonal calendar. (laughs) I'm going to debate him on this. He is going to bring science and education and expertise. I will moderate. I will be bringing absolutely nothing to the table except my gut. Except your absolute firm uh, stance that you are, what's the old saying? Uh, <laughs> often wrong, never in doubt. Right? That's <laughs> that's Liam's that's a motto. Terrible way to describe <laughs> me. She is a leader in Boston's business world, and recently published a book on why companies will win if they have a diverse workforce. Joining us now is Carol Falp, CEO of The Partnership. Thank you so much for uh, coming in. Thank you. My pleasure. Great to have you here. And first of all, you are the CEO of The Partnership. What does your organization do? Well, The Partnership has been around for 30 uh, years. Um, Our mission uh, is to help ensure the economic competitiveness of the region. Now, there are lots of organizations that do that, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, the New England Council. But at the partnership, we help ensure the economic competi- competitiveness by helping to attract, develop, retain, convene professionals of color. Mm. And we help professionals of color reach their highest potential. We do that while simultaneously working with organizations, with corporations, to help them create cultures 
where diverse professionals can thrive. Well, such a great mission. This is your new book, mm -hmm. Success Through Diversity, Why the Most Inclusive Companies Will Win. And you argue diversity isn't just a moral issue. It's a business issue, that, that businesses will do better when they're more diverse and that it's smart business. Why? Absolutely. Well, all the data points to that. In particular, the McKenzie studies indicate that the most diverse companies, particularly the most diverse companies at the highest levels, mm. produce more profits. So, if you want to be as profitable as possible, you'll have a clearly diverse organization. Why? It brings about diversity of thought. There's a new study that indicates that the more patents you have are related to the more diverse your organization mm -hmm. is. So that ties diversity to innovation. At the end of the day, this is a global marketplace, and you want your organization to reflect that global marketplace in order to produce the goods and services that marketplace needs. Mm. And a lot of companies on their own will run various programs to try to make sure that they have a fully uh, integrated workforce that is working well together as they enter into this new century. And you say that you really don't endorse the whole idea of unconscious bias training sessions. Why is that, and what is it that you do recommend instead? Well, when you think about it, I can tell you, I don't want to go to a session called unconscious bias yeah. because you are tight. Nobody wants to go to a session when they're told you're not doing it right. Mm. Mm. So you go in there clamming. You go when they're not ready to receive. But I do want to go to a session called Leading for the Future because we know the future is full of change and we are hungering for how do you lead in this new era, this new era of technology, this new era where there's more diversity than ever before, mm. this new era when there are four generations in the workplace, mm. Mm -hmm. one that says, I want you to write me. Another generation says, call me. Mm. Another says, Snapchat. email me. Yeah. Another <laughs> yeah. says, text me. Right. There is all of this difference in the workplace. So rather than saying, you know, come to a session where you're being told, you know, you're not doing it right, come to a session where you can learn about all the changes that are occurring. Mm. And then we ask, now what might get in the way of us managing that change? Mm. Mm. So learning to embrace change instead of simply telling people what they've been doing is wrong. Right. You also argue diversity is important not just at the top, but in middle management. Why is that? Well, we all know um, executives can come up with wonderful ideas and strategy. But at the end of the day, no matter what the issue is, if middle managers don't embrace it, they can implode mm. an initiative. So middle managers need to be brought along and advised why this is good for you. So I recommend that the CEO put together a task force. Now, whenever you have a challenge in business, you bring together your top business leader. Diversity, I view, as a business challenge. So bring together your top business leaders. But in this case, always include middle managers so that you have your CEO leading this business uh, initiative on diversity. You have your top business uh, leaders and you also have these middle managers who can be heard, who can own the issue, who can embrace it. Mm. And I think that's one way diversity can be embedded in the entire company. Because right. if you're gonna have any sort of call to action in a corporate environment, you're gonna need people who actually do the work. To exactly, what right. exactly. Do, right? well, you talked to a lot of business leaders for the book. Anything surprise you? You know, what really surprised me 
A lot of CEOs said, we understand the data. We too have been reading the data. Mm. We know intellectually that diversity is good for business. But our biggest challenge is how do I shift the culture? Sometimes it's like shifting the Titanic. Mm. So business leaders understand diversity is good for their organizations, but it is getting everyone to buy in. And so that's why it is important to view diversity as a business initiative, not something that is just siloed in human resources, but diversity is part of all of our responsibility. You've been a business leader here in Massachusetts for a long, long time. Boston just got its first black police commissioner, its first black district attorney. In your opinion, has Boston come a long ways in terms of diversity and recognizing some of the race issues in the city? Well, you know that we've had severe uh, challenges. We were talking about Stanley Foreman and that iconic photograph of him uh, taking that photo of uh, a white man uh, taking an American flag and thrusting it uh, in the face of an African-American in a three-piece suit mm. on City Hall Plaza. Not really all that long ago. Mm. In the 70s. Mm -hmm. And that is the image that so many still have of Boston. It is so important for us to talk about the new Boston, the new Boston that you're talking about, the new Boston that so many millennials now represent. Mm. Boston is now, as you well know, a majority minority city. 54% mm. of Boston is people of color. And when you look at your millennial population, 44% of millennials are people of color. So we are talking about a totally different Boston. But it's important for us to own our past, but then also to talk about the new Boston. Here's how we're changing. And it's important that others be aware of that as well. I do want to talk about your time at the UN. President Obama appointed you the representative mm. to the 65th General Assembly of the United Nations. And you talk in the book about looking out at the crowd mm. and something that struck you when you saw the people assembled at the UN. Yeah. Um, I had the opportunity to be appointed. And, you know, when you stand on the stage of the UN and you're at that iconic podium and you look out amongst the sea of ambassadors, it hits you that most of the world is black and brown and yellow. 29% of the UN member states are from Africa. So the world is diverse. And I look to see in that organization, was, which is built around peace and bringing people together, no matter what challenges it might have, every day, we work to bring peace to this globe. So when I came back to Boston, I just naturally wanted to work to have Boston be more reflective mm. of the UN. Mm. You've been a bit of a trailblazer. I'm sure in some of the positions you've held, you were the first black woman to hold that position. What's your advice to someone out there who might be watching who is the first black person in a position or a minority in that position? You know, I feel so strongly that um, so many others fought and died so that we could be sitting here. So our responsibility is so small mm -hmm. compared to the sacrifice that others made for us. They sacrificed, they died so that we could be sitting here. Mm -hmm. So the role that we have, the challenges that we have, the navigation we might have, to move is so small. Our job is to focus on opening the doors wider for other people of difference to walk through because others did that for us. Well, Carol Fulp, the book is Success Through Diversity, talking about the business interest in promoting diversity in corporations. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you.
So I sat down at the May Institute in Randolph with a couple named Carol and Keith Noe. They're from Brockton, and they have a little boy named Josh, who's their third child. And they just recount this heartbreaking story that when this baby, who was completely um, hitting every milestone and doing well, suddenly at 18 months regressed, became nonverbal, and showed severe symptoms of autism and how heartbreaking that was. Carol is an RN, so she actually said she was kind of on the lookout for this anyway once she had a boy because she knew there was a higher possibility among boys to have autism. And so they just talk about how difficult this was. They were directed eventually to the May Institute, and there are several May uh, institutes in Massachusetts and some in some other states for special needs children. And a woman there named Ann Essig worked with their son Josh from the time, first with home visits and then once he was at the center, uh, using ABA, which is Applied Behavior Analysis. And I just think the story and everything that they talk about uh, has to give such hope to people who have recently had a child diagnosed with autism because as Anna said, the, uh, you know, the woman who worked with Josh said to me later, there is no reason why if a child gets a symptom of autism that they can't learn, that the children she works with all progress. Josh is the best case scenario. There's no question about it. He is now in a typical kindergarten in a public school and they point out while he'll always need services he's fully functioning and verbal and they just can't believe the progress that he made and you know when you hear the difference in the way carol who's very descriptive describes what they were confronted with with this toddler boy and where he is now it really does sound miraculous and they're so grateful to this woman ann essig and the may institute for working with him you first noticed that something was up? He was 16 months old. He was completely neurotypical. And um, then at 16 months, at 16 months he started developing neurological symptoms. So he had seizures and he was having episodes where he was unresponsive, he would pass out, his walk changed, his balance changed, he started falling. Um, some really scary stuff. He was, he was obviously in pain, but we couldn't identify what where it was originating from. Yeah. And, and he was babbling at a certain point, right? And had he some was, words, yeah. but then, then stopped? He, that's right. And where his initial symptoms were so neurological, autism wasn't a huge concern for me. I was worried about a severe neurological issue. And um, when they initially diagnosed him with autism, I was almost relieved. Because you initially thought right. you were concerned it might be a brain tumor? I thought, that's yeah. right, I, I actually thought we were going to bury him. I didn't, see, I didn't see survival as a possibility with the symptoms that I was seeing. It was like lights out, um, minimal language at best. He, would, he just couldn't tolerate um, Lack of eye his contact. environment mm. like at all. And yeah, there was no eye contact whatsoever. I couldn't understand, I didn't understand why is this happening, what is happening, like, but I knew, I, I didn't feel him the way, his personality had changed so much and he was so flat and I held his little toddler cheeks in my hand and I was trying to get him to look into my eyes and I remember saying to him, Josh, come back, I miss you, I know you're in there, we're going to help you. And as soon as I said that, I knew that he, he wasn't there. Not the baby we knew, he wasn't there, mm. you know? When did you first learn about what the May Institute could do? We interviewed two separate companies and the May was one of them. I joked that Josh was born with an advocate because his grandma was an educational advocate. So um, she recommended the May. I didn't expect much. I knew how severe his symptoms were. And I, it wasn't that I didn't have faith in my son or in the May. I knew what we were dealing with. I knew what we were seeing. You know, I you didn't. You knew it was a tough road ahead. Yep. How soon did you see a difference, a change? Fairly, fairly early. It was mind blowing. Yeah. Absolutely mind blowing. And all we wanted was for him to have the brightest possible future. Yeah. So. We just want him to be the best Josh that he can be. Of so. Course. And it's largely based on positive reinforcement. It is, it is. Variously, making sure you maintain 
trick barriers and don't let them get out of control. Sure, yeah. so to be able to redirect. That's right, yeah. they redirect. A child, but with positive reinforcement, they can really bring them back. They can, and the other part that was so important is they taught us what, you know, what's causing this behavior. What does this behavior mean? So what's, it's more than just the behavior, what's going on, um, the cause and effect, you know. Sure. He's upset, he's, you know, there's a better way to handle this. Um, but the way they taught me how to interact with him changed the way I interact with all of my kids, actually. Um, and it worked because it went from constant frustration, because I have this toddler who's screaming, to being able to communicate with him. And to, I learned how to redirect those negative behaviors or understand, you know, why he was getting upset. Um, and then to positively reinforce the good stuff. Yes. Were you amazed when he left here at the end of August and went to his kindergarten classroom? Um, I was blown away. It was so, it was such... It was an emotional roller coaster. It really was. It, it was, was every emotional, yeah. it was every emotion you could possibly ever have. He was so happy and proud, but also sad Terrifying. that he was leaving and yeah, going out into the real world. Yeah, because yeah. this was his safe place. He was safe here. We knew, I knew that when I walked away from him here, that he was cared for and he lo loved. And I mean, you saw the kids respond yeah, that, to him. You got the really, response every morning too. He's a popular guy. He yeah. was. I mean, he'd be going in and saying hi to the, the gals in Billing. He knew sure. everybody. So he's come a long way. He has. Um, he has play dates. He's friends. He's playing with kids at recess. And, you know, it's just, I didn't always know that that was a possibility for him. You know? Yeah. How does it make you feel now when you think about the fear you had and then seeing him uh, at his... I, I'd say I feel both feelings. It, it's, we're very happy with his progress and where he is now. I couldn't ask for more. The maid did wonderful things. Um, but we also remember the child that he was before his regression. And he was advanced at all his milestones. And to go from one end to the other is it's difficult and you'll never forget that stuff. Yeah, it is. But I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't be happier with who he is today. Yeah. See, I think, I feel like it's a miracle. I feel like with the symptoms that he had, um, for him to go from, yes, he was so smart and so um, it, like on point or advanced developmentally to so intolerant to his surroundings and really losing so many skills, mm -hmm. then to end up here, to have Ian as his BCBA, to watch him grow, and really flourish. His story really is a miracle. He, we really got lucky. I struggled with how do I say thank you? How do we thank someone for what Ann did? How, how do you say thank you? You took my child who wasn't doing very well and was in a place where I couldn't really reach him. Um, and you, I mean, you brought him back to a point where he's gonna go to kindergarten and he's gonna make friends and you know, someday I'm gonna dance with him in his wedding. You know, we'll see him graduate from high school. And if he wants to go to college, then he'll do that. And if he wants to get into the trades, then he'll do that. But when he wasn't doing well, those weren't possibilities in my mind. How do you say thank you, you know? Well, you know, we're very lucky to live where we live, in a city with so many wonderful assets and treasures. Among our greatest treasures, of course, Fenway Park, the Charles River, and Lloyd Schwartz, <laughs> the Poet Laureate of Somerville, uh, a, a writer, a teacher, a free spirit, a Pulitzer Prize winner back in the days when we worked together at the late lamented Boston Phoenix. Lloyd, it's great to see you. Great to see you, John. Thank you for inviting me. You look damn good for 49. <laughs> we try to try to keep that up. Yeah, see, yeah. I dye my hair. I Otherwise... See. Yeah, well, I can't tell you how long I've been 49. Well, let's not go there then. <laughs> so, uh, this is going to sound like a Larry King question, you okay. know, where he's like, why'd you write the book? That's what he'd always say uh -huh. to an author, because he never read the books. <laughs> I've read your poetry, and we're going to dig wow. into that a little bit later. Ooh. But uh, 
Do you remember your first poem? Uh, I do. I was a, uh, I kind of fell in love with poetry when I was a high school senior. And I had a great English teacher who would do anything to make us interested in poetry and literature. And we read Keats. We read um, Robert Frost. Poems suddenly seemed to actually mean something. And I really fell in love with poetry. So I wrote a poem called Moonlight and Garbage. How does it go? I, you're not going to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> it's lost to the it, sands it is, of time. It huh? is lost, gratefully, thankfully lost. Uh, uh, but, but in a way, when I look back on that, I didn't think I, was, I could possibly imitate great poets. But I loved poetry, and I had to try something of my own. And, and that was a kind of, I mean, that was not what they would call a good poem. But it was, I think it suggested something about my own temperament uh, uh, and my relationship to, to poetry. You express yourself in a number of different ways, prose, mm. verbally. What's different or special about poetic expression? You know, that's a question I've been asking myself for, for, for decades, for many years. To me, it seems that poetry, whatever the style, whatever the form, is a kind of distillation of whatever that subject has to be. It, it's boiling something down to its to its just it's it, its most vital center. Let me share a, a sample of your work and then okay. have you explain how it does or doesn't okay. explain what you just said. All right. This is a poem called Song from oh. Lloyd's collection Cairo Traffic, University of Chicago Press 2000, right? Mm -hmm. So a 19-year-old poem. Rain on the Lake. Room at the lodge, alone in a room in the lazy light. Loons on the lake, geese in the air, moose in the woods, aware, awake. A cry dislodged from the musty woods, the gamey musk of the one aroused. The roaming moose, the rooms lit up, the woods awake in the loony light. The moon dislodged, the lake of flame, the muse amazed. Amused, aroused. That poem was recently set to music, uh, which I was, and since I called it song to begin with, I, it, it had a musical quality to me. And the composer John Harbison just, uh, uh, just very recently um, set it to music. It's a series of three of my poems that have been set to music. And it's called Schwartz Songs. Schwartz which, Songs? Which, which I, I think is a, a very amusing. And There's you, a title for your next collection. Line. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, this, this poem really grabbed me. I was oh, reading through a bunch of good. your work because, first of all, it's so sparse. Mm -hmm. And this speaks to the point you made about how poetry distills right. things to their essence, or yeah. to, to so it, it evoked. Is it, was this Maine? It was. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm. I love Maine, and yeah. it evoked Maine. To oh, me. good, good, good. Just, just the descriptions of of the environment there, but the wordplay yeah. is wonderful. The uh, you know the imagery, and then. At the end, how I assume the muse is you. Yeah. Your muse. You're my muse. And how you yeah. describe how nature can yeah. amuse and amaze and arouse the muse within. Can I tell you something a little funny about the history of this poem? Uh, I, I, I read it at a reading, and um, one of the other people reading was a poetry editor. And she had liked the poem and wanted to publish it. And her publication was a little nervous about the word aroused at the end of the poem. <laughs> and would I be willing to change it to something a little less um, graphic? Really? <laughs> yes. 
And I, <laughs> what? I better not say. What? But <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I didn't change it. But wow. it, it got it got very very nicely well, published eventually. That, the last thing I want to do is waste our our time together <laughs> going down Phoenix memory lane. Oh, here. let's though. But you know, while I've never felt constrained or hyper-edited in, in any job I've had. Yeah. There was nothing like the freedom of writing about politics for the Boston Phoenix. Yeah. Um, well, that was true of, of writing about music yeah. <laughs> because uh, there were times when I was, let's say, critical of um, groups, musical groups that advertised in the Phoenix and that had to be something of a problem for the people who ran the phoenix but it never it never sank down to to my level nobody ever said you know can you be nicer to right. such and such oh no the the late stephen mindich the yeah. publisher of the phoenix was a stand up guy when it came to that kind of thing. totally yeah yeah totally yeah. i i miss it tremendously so now you have what strikes me as a just a great gig i with laureate yeah. Of Somerville, what what does it mean to be a poet laureate? Yeah, well, I'm 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 kind of figuring that out as we go along. I haven't been a poet laureate for very long. Okay, <laughs> only a few weeks, really. My sense is that not only should there be more poetry in people's lives, but that there is more poetry in people's lives than they even realize. One of America's great poet laureates, Robert Pinsky, who was poet laureate of the country for th three consecutive terms, had a really profound and wonderful idea, which was his favorite poem project. And that was to go around the country and invite people who were not poets, who were not part of the poetry world, to admit that they had a poem or more than one poem in their lives and that the poem meant something to them. And then he went around the country videotaping these events in cities all over the place in which, you know, hi-fi repair people and, and ditch diggers and city officials uh, had to admit in public that they well yeah there was a poem in my life that I that really meant something to me and then they would read the poem and talk about the poem so on April 17th we're going to have a similar event for Somerville at the Somerville Armory the mayor of Somerville is going to participate he's going to read a poem and say what it meant to him or why he liked it and we're in the process now of lining up more people to, to come. No poets will be among the readers, at least not at this reading. And, um, and we'll see what happens. And I think there will be a minister and a, someone who owns a restaurant nearby. And, and, and they all have to be residents of Somerville. April 17th, April 17th. Somerville Armory right there on Highland Ave. Yes. What time? Uh, 7 o'clock. 7 o'clock. Has the internet and the smartphone, the ubiquity of the smartphone, been good for poetry, bad for it? What an interesting question that is, because I think the answer is yes, it has been good for poetry. That, you know, of course there are the big places to publish, the New Yorker and Poetry Magazine and the Atlantic, but there are all these poetry websites, poetry journals that are online. And they are very widely read. Um, the major poetry organizations, the Poetry Society of America, uh, the Academy of American Poets, uh, the Poetry Foundation, they all have websites. You can find almost any poem you were looking for on the web. And there are also all these new poems that are very easy to access because of the internet. What's your go-to place for really sort of cutting-edge poetry right now? I'm I'm a big fan of a of a poet of an online poetry journal called Plume. P L U M E. P L U M E, and 
uh, they just took a new palm of mine, so I'm, I'm, I'm very happy about that. But there's some really interesting younger people, but also old-timers like, like me. I'm constantly being surprised by what I find there, and I'm, I'm always eager to see each, each new issue. But then in, in, in Boston, Plowshares, Agni, Salamander, magazines that have become affiliated with institutions, and always interesting stuff. And not just, they don't just publish people from Boston. What's a recent poem you've written that you're especially proud of? The composer John Harbison has just turned 80, and there have been a lot of celebrations for him. And they asked me to write something as a surprise for John at this event at, at, at Emanuel Music. Read that one for us, Lloyd. It's called The Rehearsal. And it's um, John, John Harbison talking about his first meeting with the woman who became his wife. The Rehearsal. At our first duo rehearsal, Bach's B minor sonata was what we played. I already knew this young woman interested me. We borrowed a room, where was it? With a harpsichord, whose? And with few words began the sonata. As this unfolded, recognition, confirmation, accord, consternation. Above all, the marking of a common center. She had told me Bach was her favorite composer, her home site. But by the end of the first movement, I knew that in her case, this was not just devotion to the music, its spirit, its generosity, but a trust in it a willingness to let it speak. What I heard at the same time in that first movement is the loneliness that often inhabits the undertone of a great master's work, the habitation of a realm so rarely visited with so little company to find that secret in music the performer needs an inner life a kind of solitary experience. I sensed a person for whom art costs too much, for whom the sharing of that intense experience with others is often painful and risky. I knew what that might be like. I sensed joy, possibility, danger, complication, inextricability, a fulcrum, a magnet, a talisman. We began the second movement. A person for whom art costs too much. I see a whole nother poem in the making. Yeah. What a great birthday present. I I think he liked it. (laughs) And speaking of gifts, Lord Schwartz is sharing his with the people of Somerville, and I guess all comers are welcome. Absolutely, sure. April 17th at the Somerville Armory. Right. Well, we couldn't fit Fenway Park or the Charles River in here to interview (laughs) them, but at least we got one of our greatest local treasures in here, Lloyd Um, Schwartz, Poet Laureate of Somerville. Thanks for being here on Studio BZ, and keep on doing what you do. Thank you, John. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. The answer is more technology. More and better. More and better. better. Oh, here is. Oh, here's Eric. Monsieur Fisher. Shall we do this now? All right. By the way, we need some sort of sound effect or drum roll because this is. To have Eric's Eric first visit to the podcast. It's a job we do at the studio here. It feels nice. It's nice. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. A little sound uh, proofing in here and. It's more true. space than we used to have. Yeah. It's a nice improvement. Is this your inaugural podcast? No. 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 First time we, in the talk, new we talked last year. Yeah. She, she talked this, is, this is classic Paula. <laughs> oh, 
I will, can, can I tell you a story? Have we met before? Yeah, yeah. Yes, you're my cousin. Classic Paula. We've had Eric here many times. Uh, Just making sure. The, I kid you not, a couple of years, Paula and I have now been partners in this uh, endeavor for four, three, four years. Well, so and, you can't remember. Well, okay, but that's different from remembering an actual experience, which is that Two years ago, there's a snowstorm. We're sitting down together to do snow cover. She looks at me and so excitedly goes, I can't believe this is our first time doing a, the snowstorm together. We had done a minimum of three snowstorms <laughs> the together. The previous winter. Yeah, the previous winter. I was um, really hurt. You know what it is when you're in, you know how it is, news. As soon as you go through that news cycle, it must be expunged from your yeah. brain. Well, it wasn't you can't keep it mine. on the hard drive. I was going to say, yeah, no, and then next year, year I would disagree. You, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't expunged from I my store all of those little just, tidbits away, which is yeah. why I'm aging at a rapid rate. I was making sure that we. Um, yeah. Well, and then and when I was offended, Paula then called me delicate. Yes. So that <laughs> was like taking, kind of a, uh, that was, He has a delicate That part is accurate, She I took an open wound and stuck her finger into the wound and then I twisted. Said, I'm sorry. I forgot you're a little delicate about these matters. That's a mom who's seen everything and heard I'm all the excuses sorry, and got wrong. I forgot to goodness. remember yeah. our snow coverage mm. of 2016. Yeah. I'm, I can bring up all kinds of... I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. I'm moving on. I'm a bigger right, man than we're this. Moving on. And now we're moving on to the next thing about which I feel We're going to go on to the fact that Liam wants to change the calendar. Yes. So uh, yesterday mm. on Twitter. Gregorian's not doing it for you anymore. <laughs> yes. Because of the beginning of our march so far, which mm. we're, we have now almost tied the total for all of winter in just March with snowfall. Boston, That's true. Right? It's pretty close. You said we're about six inches off. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I said yesterday on Twitter that uh, I think we have kind of a new calendar of seasons here in Boston and in New England in general, in which uh, uh, winter is, let me get my, my tweet up here. Let's new start. calendar of seasons. Yeah. Winter is January, February, March. Spring is April, May, June. Summer is now, this is great news. The rest of it's not necessarily, but summer is now July, August, September, October. And fall is just November and December, which is disappointing because I love fall. Um, you have quickly debunked me using <laughs> science and facts. Well, uh, let me ask, do so you think the, the seasons have shifted? No, I don't. No? Um, I don't think that you can really gauge shifts until you've passed you know, at least 30 years. You know, It's mm -hmm. not something that you go year to year and say, this is a trend. You have to look right. at decades to see if things are moving around. Mm -hmm. And even in this decade, you know, the first few years of the 2010s, we had very warm springs, unusually warm springs. Mm -hmm. And then the last few years, we've had some really cold, bumpy springs. And so that, to me, is not really a trend. It's just mm. kind of two different things setting up. However, you look at seasons and everyone has kind of a different definition. Now, you have astronomical seasons, which is going by the equinoxes as well as the solstices. Uh, you could go by climatological seasons. So when we talk about winter records, they're December, January, February. Spring is March, April, May. Mm. Even if the weather doesn't perfectly start align. to match those things or align. And then you could do it a different way. This is my favorite way. So maybe this would fit for you, Liam. Okay. So we could go by temperature. So let's call winter yeah. the coldest 25% of all the temperatures in Boston. And we'll call summer the 25%, the quarter of the warmest temperatures, fall and spring or what fall between the two. Okay. And so if you look at it that way, winter and summer are our longest seasons. So winter does seem to last a long time mm, around here. Does. And if you went by the lowest 25%, winter starts right after Thanksgiving and it ends around St. Patrick's Day. And that feels yes, about right, doesn't it? Does. It? Yeah. it really does. That does feel does. about right. Here's my thing uh, to go back to my point uh, is that it feels <laughs> <laughs> the only point that matters. No, no, no. It feels to me that that March is now winter and September and October even have become summerish. Hmm. At least in the last few years. And what you're saying is maybe in the last few years that's true, well, not yet a trend. Yeah. You know, it kind of bops around a little bit. Like last year, mm -hmm. we did not have a warm October. We had a warm September. Mm -hmm. And then it kind of mm -hmm. shut down in October. And then November was like winter. And so mm -hmm. spring is the most volatile season always. I mean, right. spring can blow torch and all of a sudden it feels like summer and we're sweating. Spring right. can take forever and be wet and Very just rainy. snowy or rainy. And March of all the months. Yeah. is probably the biggest wildcard month, I feel like. And takes right. forever. It takes forever. The one thing you have to admit is even though the um, expression is no longer acceptable, our forebears used to call Indian summer 
hot weather into mm. September and October. Correct? After a after a frost, right? So, it'd be oh, like something okay. so after would, a hard frost, yeah, it'd it be another warm, warm spell after we had some cold. So clearly, that's always been a phenomenon. Here's what I'd ask then: uh, Is there no data suggesting? any sort of a, of a shift over time, whether it be a result of just cycles or a result of climate change? There has been some data, especially around this part of the country, that is showing that the seasons are smushing together a little bit more. Mm. Meaning there's the less... The technical term of smushing. <laughs> smushing. Please so define let's a use smush. a better word. Less variance. <laughs> okay, less variance. So we're not seeing the same amount of... You know, winter is this, and it's cold, and spring is this, and summer is this, and fall is mm. this. There's been a little bit more of just similar types of conditions that are bleeding into each other. So you have less definition between the that seasons. That feels totally right to me. When, when we were kids, yeah. you would sled all winter. No, you would just see, go sledding I all winter. And, and it was there was generally snow cover for most of I the winter. I want to hear Paula's yeah. take here. I haven't heard a lot from Paula. I want to know just, her saying, just saying, She's I remember being very upset and disappointed all in the, let's say, you'd have to go back, blizzard of 78 mm-hmm. taken out. Mm-hmm. There were lots of winters in the late 70s, mid to late 70s, when I was a child when there was no snow on the ground. And, and I Paula, was so irritated because the grass... You are spot on. Hey! Because we have... There's one good memory I have. ...of very quiet winters in the 70s and 80s yes, in particular. I was actually yeah. just talking to another meteorologist today. I was today, robbed. And, uh, you know, we we're talking about the, uh, the snowfall and what we had the other day. And he's like, I'll take it. You know, we, as a child of the 80s, you know, we would go years without a single 10-inch snowstorm. Yeah. Hmm. And now we have them all the time. Yeah. I mean, this last 10, 15 years has been crazy in terms of snowstorms. We haven't always held on to the snow cover. Right. It which I think like changes the perception. Yeah. You know, we've had a couple of winters with deep snowpack, but this year, I mean, we haven't really had snow on the ground until the last couple of weeks. Mm. And that's yes. been it for the whole yeah. season. So that part may be changing more because our winters have been getting warmer. Right. So it would make sense that maybe we would see less snow cover overall. But in terms of snowstorms, we kind of go in these decadal cycles of really busy times and really quiet times. The 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. like you said, blizzard of 78 notwithstanding, right. was a very quiet time into the early 90s. And then as we got to like 1994, 95, from there up until about now, we've had this really snowy stretch. Mm-hmm. And I actually, yeah. I mean, we can have this podcast in 20 years and we can check back. <laughs> but I think we're about to enter a quieter pattern again. Um, I think oh. if we look back 20 mm-hmm. years from now, we're going to say, wow, that was really the golden age of snow. Active. And now it's going to trend a little bit quieter. We'll see if it comes to fruition. Yeah. So the two long-term trends we can be sure of, it's generally getting warmer mm-hmm. and there's some schmushing mm-hmm. going on. There is some, some schmushing Push. of the okay. seasons, yes. And uh, we've seen a few more like warm events in the wintertime. We've seen some weird cold or warm events in the fall and the spring. And so you don't really get into a seasonal mode. Now, that being said, you know, these trends are not so drastic that maybe everyone mm-hmm. would notice right. in their daily life. We're talking over decades of time. Yeah. Um, and so we've always had these extreme conditions at any time of the year, but the trend overall long-term has, has been seeing more of that. Okay. Just to cap this off, uh, Paula this remembered fun. whether there was snow on the ground in 1975, yes. but not that she and I did snow coverage <laughs> together two years ago. So. The glittering jewel city of the world. This show has been jam-packed. Before we close out, I have to begin with an apology. You know how much I love you. Yes. And I I didn't mean to not remember our snow coverage when we were discussing the weather. I have forgiven you um, 90%. All right. 90%. I'm working working, my way back. Yeah, you're getting there. Into your heart. You're getting there. All right. You're getting there. This this podcast has gone a long way because, you know, every (laughs) week it's, uh, you know, we're just... Talking about various things. We're talking with a chief meteorologist, a Pulitzer Prize winner, Somerville's Poet Laureate, people who help treat kids with autism. uh, We get to cover it all. Every week is a new adventure here. It is. In the Studio BZ podcast. Really, really fun. So we miss our John Keller, but you can always contact him on Twitter at Keller at Large. You can always contact the very delicate and special Liam Martin. On now Twitter, you're at, 80%. At, <laughs> at Liam. And by the way, John, yes. uh, I have a bone to pick with him because oh, while really? he was on vacation, he sent me a picture of himself on vacation, palm trees in the back. I don't mm. know where he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and his bare feet. Oh, yes. Was he, was, he wanted to taunt you. And even better. very intentionally placed in the frame even of better, the photo. They were in some sort of Tiva sandal. Oh, the worst, the worst possible Which way. you just hate. <laughs> and this offends yeah. 
Liam's delicate disposition well, as our producer Jonathan Case holds up yeah. his delicate sign yeah. no, no, once but, again. But his feet were in disgusting sandals. Yeah. John is and taunting like, I'd you from afar. rather just be bare. That's than true. Be in a sandal. What it's is like it? It frames the foot what in a certain way. What is it way. about men's feet in sandals? Yeah, that's so off. He sent me a picture. It's almost ninety percent of the picture are his feet, isn't it? And there's some little yeah. palm trees in the he background. Wrote, he wrote Liam. Said, yeah, he said, you know, he I'm just... having a great time on vacation. <laughs> so when he comes back, just toodaloo, <laughs> torturing you from here on vacation. Liam. Yeah, he's so. Uh, if you want to tease Liam, revenge your Twitter coming. handle is Liam WBZ. <laughs> yes, and yours is. I'm at Paula Eben WBZ. Yeah. John is at Keller at Large. Yeah. It's at Studio BZ Pod. We would love to hear your thoughts yeah. on everything from the season's defeat. Austin's number one podcast, Jonathan. How Always is on. the podcast going? Are we how, what, how we feel about how everything's going? Uh, the show is great. No, I've I realized, mean, like, you know what we need? And, uh, By the way, do you know what we need? And we'll take suggestions. Alston's number one podcast needs its own poet laureate. Uh, that's hmm. If that, Somerville that's has one. That's definitely true. Um, but I, I, I didn't know when to break it to you guys, but I just realized we are not Alston's number one podcast. <gasps> Says who? Um, I, there According is a, uh, to who? There's a podcasting studio. Uh, like I've l- seen it. Literally less than a block away from here mm-hmm. uh, from PRX so I'm I'm, I, I'm not sure what shows record in there but they're definitely <laughs> they're getting <laughs> they're, more tune in than we I are says I don't even know what the podcast <laughs> is know. but I'm certain more people <laughs> listen to it than listen to you than listen to you noobs <laughs> Some of our some of our episodes yeah have the been brutalism debate quite did really well yeah yes. yeah I, it's weird which by the way was also my bare feet debate. it was yeah <laughs> and so, people go back yes. and listen to earlier podcasts so we're even that growing is true. audience yes um, that's the the weird those. thing about I mean I've never produced a podcast before so I don't know how this generally goes mm-hmm. and I'm probably going to mm-hmm. cut this part out but um, <laughs> okay. great great so we're stuck with this yeah. new <laughs> well but uh, it, they see people seem to go back and listen to our older mm-hmm. episodes. So they want either, to spend more time with Liam. Yeah, yeah I, I don't blame I mean, them. Either people like us and go back and listen to the old ones, or uh, they—it's—it's it's a keyword SEO thing. Who knows? It's, yeah, it's—it's mm. it's a, it's a funny thing. I don't know how people find us, but well, this is how the sausage is made. Everyone, it's true. You're getting an inside this look. This is it. As, as your producer, never push a mic in my face. <laughs> <laughs> so, do we have to say the thing that John always says at the end? Oh, I, I, I expect we will. Okay, go ahead. Yeah. We'll be seeing you. <laughs> that was so wholehearted. <laughs> I thought John you were, does it I with so much that. more gusto than I did. Well, well, that's on you. I know. Yeah. That's why I was trying to get you to start it. <laughs> and then you chimed in halfway through. Like, like you could feel you weren't in it. <laughs> Should we do it again? Now I'm feeling... Should we do it again? Uh, delicate again. <laughs> <laughs> and next week, we'll, we'll be seeing you. That was so much better. That was, that was that so was much better. That one sold it, nailed it. Thank you, That's a wrap, everyone. And uh, Keller will be back next week. Yeah.